0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. You know that? giant, empty building on the south side of Lake Merritt, the one that's just across the street from the grassy new amphitheater where people are always hanging out. That building is called the Kaiser Convention Center now, but it used to be the Oakland Auditorium. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech there in 1962. The Black Panthers organized a conference there in 1969. The Grateful Dead played there dozens of times. From Motown, to basketball, to roller derby, the now-closed venue hosted all kinds of events over the years. I even saw The Roots play there once uh, about a dozen years ago. That's why I was so shocked to see a photograph taken from inside the auditorium back in 1924. It's an image of more than 8,000 Ku Klux Klan members. There's a large rectangular formation of Klansmen in white robes and hoods standing along the perimeter of the auditorium. 500 new clan recruits are standing in the center. A sea of blurry faces fills the stands, and it would be kind of hard to believe if there wasn't a photo to prove it, but large fires are burning in the stands where people are sitting on either side of the auditorium. It's hard to tell because the flames are so big, but the fires are actually burning crosses. There's this stereotype about the KKK that they were like just a bunch of backwoods rednecks. In the East Bay, however, that wasn't the case at all. My goal with this podcast isn't to use history to predict the future, but I think that exploring this era of the local KKK will actually shed some light on how Donald Trump came to power and what may come next. The local KKK movement didn't last long. Their rise and fall all happened around the time of the 1920s, but they did make an impact that changed Oakland forever. The kind of impact that I think Trump could have on America and the rest of the world. So stay tuned. This episode of East Bay Yesterday is a little different and I don't plan on making a habit of it. But with the inauguration happening next week, well, sometimes I feel like having a better grasp on history is a helpful way of not freaking out about what's happening now. And I'm pretty freaked out, too. I know I'm not alone, so I hope this helps. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Keep it locked. getting into the KKK, let's set the scene and see how Oakland looked back in the day. Here's a quick nutshell version of Oakland history. Tons of immigrants flooded into West Oakland once it became the final stop of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. A few decades later, there was another population boom of people fleeing San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. Lots of the people who lived in West Oakland and around the waterfront areas were of Irish or Southern or Eastern European descent. So think Portuguese, Italian, Greek. The main thing to remember is that there were a lot of Catholics. These were quote-unquote ethnic neighborhoods. Many of the men were so-called unskilled laborers. They toiled for like 10 cents an hour in rail yards and factories, working really dirty and dangerous jobs. Women and children earned even less, working in horrible canning plants and textile factories where nasty accidents happened all the time. During this era, Oakland was being run by what's called a political machine. Here's how the machine worked. The city government didn't really have the ability to provide the kinds of public services that people nowadays expect. So politicians signed contracts with big corporations to deliver things like water and public transportation. Since the contracts gave these companies monopolies, they were the ones with the real power in town. They had stacks of money coming in from these deals and they controlled who got the jobs. The way they kept this all running smoothly was through a system known as political patronage. Basically, that meant that the politicians told the people in their communities, you vote for me and I'll make sure you get a job down at the rail yard or wherever. And they played this kind of middleman role between the corporations who needed the workers and the folks in their neighborhood who needed the jobs. Since the politicians were often busy doing you know, like politician-y things. They needed help at the street level of this whole operation, to keep things churning along without too many hiccups. And that's where two important groups of people come into the equation. Tavern owners and priests. A lot of this low-level business was handled in saloons. Barkeepers knew everyone in the neighborhood, so they were kind of like the mini-mayors of their blocks. Settling disputes and giving the politicians a place to rally the troops around election time and things like that. And the priests had authority. People respected them. They helped connect people with jobs and turn out the voters and essentially acted as small cogs in this political machine. One of the most important things to understand about this system of favors and jobs and votes Is that these networks were based on family relationships, ethnicity, neighborhood, etc. To put it simply,
1: you took care of your own. By the 1920s, this alliance was being challenged by two new groups.
0: That's the voice of Professor Chris Romberg. He wrote a book called No There There, Race, Class, and Political Community in Oakland. This book does a great job at explaining why Oakland's corrupt political machine created fertile ground for the rise of the KKK. It all started when two groups came on the scene that didn't want to play by the machine's rules any longer.
1: First, a downtown business elite began to emerge, uh, including local banks, uh, retail merchants like department stores, and and led by Joseph Noland, who was the publisher of the Oakland Tribune. Second there was a growing middle-class population that settled mainly in East Oakland. Both of the downtown elites and the new middle-class then were opposed to the patronage system of the old machine. So the Klan was able to capitalize on their grievances in order to be able to win popular support.
0: And here's the thing. Most of their grievances were pretty legit. The corporations in power were way more focused on enriching themselves than... Actually, providing people with reliable services. Anyway, in 1909, the city of Oakland annexed the land east of 23rd Avenue, which played a big part in the city's population more than doubling that decade. Unlike in West Oakland, where the population was more quote-unquote ethnic, the people who lived in East Oakland were mainly Protestants of English, German, and Scandinavian stock. They were small businessmen, skilled craftspeople, and the whole area had much more of a up-and-coming suburban vibe. This is where that stereotype I mentioned earlier gets challenged. The Oakland KKK weren't some group of,
1: like, backwoods hillbillies.
0: They were the upwardly mobile middle class,
1: it wasn't people who were transient. The traditional view of this is that this was a backward-looking uh, movement of a kind of dying group of a sort of an old rural Protestant middle class uh, that was getting swept aside by urbanization and modernism. It wasn't really a dying group. It was a rising group. It was, you know, uh, middle-class professionals. It was people in the newer neighborhoods, not in the older neighborhoods or, or sort of racially changing neighborhoods, uh, but it was this new middle class, uh, urban middle class, that was rising and uh, and was in a position to mobilize resources and make demands. Basically, what the people who joined the Klan wanted on a political level was
0: a local government that actually worked and was responsive to their needs.
1: The rising middle class population wanted to get rid of ethnic patronage in City Hall, and they wanted city services and protection for the racial and class status of their own neighborhoods. Uh, So the Klan was able to take advantage of that. Pretty
0: much everything the city was supposed to be responsible for, from sewers to roads to law enforcement, was being handled in a way that people rightfully saw as inefficient and corrupt. Remember that the so-called public service corporations had monopolies. So they could price gouge, provide lousy service, and there wasn't much people could do about it. This led to a growing group of very angry white people. And here's why they decided to form a pseudo-secret society to take on City Hall. Just like today, when you want to organize people politically, if you really want to get them riled up, you don't just focus on the issues. You need to get people emotionally invested. And racism, well, it's like pouring gasoline on the sparks of your political movement to really get the fire raging. And that's exactly what they did, quite literally.
1: Well, in the East Bay, there were cross burnings at mass rally events in uh, Tilden Park, uh, in Cragmont Park, uh, and at the Oakland Auditorium, as well as elsewhere. These were media mainly uh, publicity stunts, and you know, uh, done for media exposure. Hmm.
0: Staging racist political stunts to grab headlines. Is this starting to sound familiar? Okay, back to Professor Romberg.
1: Well, the publicity stunts and the media coverage attracted members. The main thing, at the, uh, however, I think at this time was that secret fraternal societies were actually a very common form of grassroots social and civic organization. The secret rituals and all the regalia were part of the attraction as well. The idea of being an insider and being a member of this, you know, elite group and sort of having a secret to share Uh, once again, this is, you know, before television and, you know, before even before, you know, sound movies at the time. So, you know, this is sort of a way that people engaged in, you know, their evenings entertainment was to sort of join some of these groups and participate in some of these activities.
0: Okay. So, with all this talk of the KKK, you might be wondering where African American folks fit into this equation. Here's the thing the Oakland clan was trying to take power from a political machine that was mainly composed of Irish and other Catholic groups. So, at the time, they weren't really focused on black people. Now, of course, the KKK was super racist. At an individual level, Klansmen did try to keep African Americans from moving into their neighborhoods, and in the rare cases when black families tried to move into white neighborhoods, the Oakland police refused to help protect them against attacks from their white neighbors. But that is really a whole other story that's much, much bigger than the KKK. Alright, getting back to the KKK's main mission— Many of the people in the political machine that the Klan was trying to overthrow were Irish and other Catholic ethnicities, so they devised a racially charged strategy to demonize and attack those groups. One big element of the Klan's strategy involved prohibition. In 1920, the U.S. Amendment banning alcohol went into effect, and this gave the Klan and their allies a very powerful tool for attacking those booze-loving Catholics.
1: Prohibition was a major element of the cultural politics of white Protestant Christian nationalism at the time. Alcohol was associated with immigration and especially with uh, Catholic ethnic groups.
0: I'm about to throw a little tiny bit of math at you real quick, so don't fall asleep. Here we go. It's estimated that in the years before Prohibition, there were about 450 saloons in Oakland for a population of less than 200,000. That breaks down to roughly one bar for every 444 people. According to a recent study, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania currently has the most bars per capita of any major U S city. And they have about one bar for every 833 people. So just to put that in context, Oakland, back in the day, had way, way, way more bars per capita than any U.S. city has today. Here's why the Klan was so supportive of
1: that ban on booze. Prohibition also targeted the saloon, uh, which in fact was an important social and political institution in the working class ethnic community and formed part of the civic organizational base for machine politicians. You know, Jack London, of course, who grew up in Oakland and and wrote about it, uh, has a famous description of this in which, you know, as a boy, he would go into the saloons and find local politicians and judges and journalists and leading social figures uh, using the saloon as an opportunity to reach out to a working class ethnic community and, you know, in the process, you know, recruit votes by targeting alcohol and by targeting saloons, they were absolutely targeting, cultural values and and cultural and social institutions within the ethnic and Catholic working class community.
0: The Jack London quote that Chris just referred to is from an autobiographical novel called John Barleycorn that covers some of London's boyhood in Oakland. This quote paints a really vivid picture of the role that bars played in local machine politics. So I'm gonna read it in an accent that doesn't really make any sense. Uh, In saloons, I saw reporters, editors, lawyers, judges whose faces and names I knew. They put the seal of approval on the saloon. You see, in election time, local politicians, aspirants for office, have way of making the rounds of the saloons to get votes. They have smiles and greetings for everybody, for you, without the price of a glass of beer in your pocket, for the timid hobo who lurks in the corner and certainly hasn't a vote, but who may establish a lodging house registration. And the next thing you know, you're lined up at the bar, pouring drinks down your throat, and learning the gentlemen's names and the offices which they hope to fill. So it seems like the main strategy was basically get people really drunk, and then they would vote for you. Clearly, pushing the cops to shut down these saloons, which had morphed into illegal speakeasies once prohibition went into effect, was a win-win strategy for the Klan. It helped neutralize their opponents, It helped the KKK develop stronger relationships with the cops, and it glorified their activities in the public spotlight.
1: Klan officials did accompany law enforcement officials on prohibition raids. Uh, Then again, many law enforcement officers were members or supporters of the Klan at the time. And so the Klan was able to kind of, again, capitalize on that opportunity to, to make a sort of big public spectacle out of some of these raids and gain popular support. Taking
0: a step back, this whole scenario feels really reminiscent of how the quote-unquote war on drugs played out in the latter half of the 20th century. There was this really important book called The New Jim Crow that came out a few years ago and was written by a professor named Michelle Alexander. Alexander was inspired to write the book while doing some research on police harassment of black drivers in, that's right, Oakland, California. And one of her main arguments in the book is that the origin of the war on drugs wasn't really about just trying to stop people from selling and using marijuana and other narcotics. It was a political weapon. It was a way for politicians and their supporters to use law enforcement and the courts and the prisons to attack and politically neutralize and take power away from this whole group of people Mainly African Americans and other people of color. And looking back, it feels like the KKK and their law enforcement allies, at least in Oakland, used prohibition's anti alcohol laws in a somewhat similar fashion as a political weapon. Ultimately, this strategy was pretty successful. The KKK were able to win enough popular support to get some of their members elected to positions of power including alameda county sheriff county jailer and commissioner of streets and they were able to gain the kind of influence in city hall that they had been fighting for now those of you who know anything about politics are aware that voters don't always get what they bargain for after the politicians they've supported get into office this may not be much of a news flash but sometimes politicians who promise to clean up broken systems just end up playing the same corrupt game. (coughs) Trump! This is exactly what happened as soon as the White Sheet Squad got some power in Oakland.
1: The problem was that once in power, the Klan politicians proved to be even more corrupt. In law enforcement, Alameda County Sheriff Burton Becker took over, who was a Klan member, took over uh, and uh, began then to extract graft from bootleggers himself. And their system was that they would arrest the smaller distributors in order to be able to concentrate both the supply and distribution uh, among just a few sources, which would make the graft more efficient for them to collect.
0: Another major figure was William Parker a clan member who was elected to City Commissioner of Streets. As soon as he got the job, Parker basically started selling off street paving contracts to the highest bidder. Again, one little side note, when Trump launches his big infrastructure program, this is exactly the type of kickback scheme to look out for, except on a much bigger scale. But back to Oakland. The problem was that a lot of the work being done on these streets was really shoddy. The roads started falling apart almost as soon as they were built. The hypocrisy of this con job is pretty incredible. These KKK guys whipped their supporters into a frenzy by promising to end the booze-fueled shenanigans of these dirty Irishmen and corrupt Catholics. Then, instead of trying to stop the bootlegging, bribery, gambling, and graft, they immediately started doing the exact same thing. But here's where they went wrong they weren't very good at it. The previous political machine had decades to fine tune their shady system. The Klan's whole operation started crumbling right away. <laughs> Unfortunately for the Pointy Hat Brigade, there was a young new district attorney in town. Just to give you an idea of how ambitious this fellow was, Spoiler alert, he went on to become governor of California and then chief justice of the Supreme Court. That's right, Earl Warren helped bring down the Oakland KKK.
1: He was the district attorney for Alameda County at the time. He was uh, just you know, starting out in his career and he was trying to make a name for himself as a crusading district attorney. And uh, as they began to do the investigations and and pursue the criminal cases then against these public officials, Warren convened the grand jury to uh, return indictments, uh, but he was actually afraid that the grand jury wouldn't indict them because there would be Klan members on the grand jury. Uh, So in order to preempt that then, he took what was the extraordinary step of actually releasing the grand jury transcripts to the press. And the surrounding publicity around that, and including the exposure of members' names, then just evaporated the support, the public support anyway, uh, uh, you know, among civic elites uh, for the Klan and helped to lead then uh, to the convictions of people like William Parker uh, and Burton Becker. Boom!
0: Take that, you cuckoo clowns. Actually, we probably shouldn't celebrate just yet because even though the KKK crashed and burned pretty quick... They did create this tectonic shift in Oakland politics. Here's how it happened. Remember those downtown elites I mentioned earlier who weren't too happy with how the machine was running the show? This was basically the Chamber of Commerce crowd. So it included downtown bankers, real estate developers, local manufacturers, construction firms, retailers, like big department stores. In other words, businessmen. They saw that much of the KKK's agenda had a lot of popular support, and it actually aligned quite nicely with their own interests. Specifically, they wanted City Hall to be run more like a business than a sort of mafia. So they simply incorporated much of what the KKK wanted into their own platform.
1: It was left to other groups then uh, to finally deal with the issue and sort of co-opt the grievances of the rising white middle classes. That came then from the downtown business elite led by Joseph Nolan and the Oakland Tribune. They pushed forward then a city charter reform that got rid of the old city government form and instituted a, a weak mayor, weak city council, and strong city manager system that basically turned the city government uh, into like a, the management of a private company. This kept taxes low for the homeowners in East Oakland uh, and basically served the interests of the downtown business elite.
0: This conservative political structure, it basically allowed white businessmen to monopolize power in Oakland. And it ruled for decades. What Professor Romberg said a minute ago about a weak mayor and a strong city manager, that basically meant that the democratically elected mayor was not the one with real power in Oakland. It was an unelected manager who was handpicked by the downtown business elites who really ran things. Sure, the city was able to deliver services more efficiently than before, but the benefits were not evenly distributed.
1: So the upshot of the whole period of reform then is that Oakland got its reform, not necessarily from the Klan, uh, which proved to be a very corrupt organization and, and fell apart uh, you know, as soon as it came into power. But rather, the reforms were led by the downtown elite. But the social base of the Klan, the popular membership, in many ways got what it wanted. It got low taxes in, in its uh, residential neighborhoods, adequate city services, and protection for the class and racial status of their areas.
0: This last part, protection for the racial status of their areas, what that meant is that Oakland remained segregated for decades. Up through the 1960s, there were still neighborhoods where people of color were pretty much forbidden from buying homes. Instead, they were forced to live in polluted, underserved ghettos, patrolled by a brutal, nearly all-white police force.
1: A conservative city government really held on for a long time. Lionel Wilson wasn't elected as the first African-American mayor until 1977, which many people considered to be fairly late at the time, given the demographics of the city that should have suggested Oakland would have elected a black mayor much earlier. I mean, activists at the time even looked at the city as sort of saying, you know, It was easier to get elected to the state legislature or even to the U.S. Congress than it was to get elected to the Oakland City Council. Uh, And the earliest black officials were at those other levels, at the larger levels than they were at the local levels because, you know, uh, the restrictions were there and the, the limitations were there. And the old view of the Klan, the 1920s Klan, was that it was sort of swept aside by the New Deal and you know, urban liberal pluralism, uh, and that we kind of got over all of that. But in many places, that, that didn't really happen as much. Uh, it wasn't so much that, that it was swept aside by liberal pluralism as it is just the period of mobilization and insurgency and the sort of you know, extremism that the Klan represented faded. But uh, a lot of it be- actually became the mainstream.
0: This is a pretty scary thought. One way of looking at this history is that the Klan took off the silly costumes and set aside the creepy cross burnings because they didn't need to pull off these weird publicity stunts to build a following because they were already achieving their goals. In this era of the Klan's history, around the 1920s, KKK-affiliated politicians won governorships or US Senate seats in Colorado Indiana, Kansas, and Oregon, as well as several southern states. Altogether, it recruited about 4 or 5 million members nationally, making it what some historians think was the largest right-wing movement organization in American history. Many of those people didn't stop being racist just because they stopped going to Klan rallies after a few years, they just found different, more effective ways to promote white supremacy and exercise political power. In his book, Professor Romberg argues that the lasting legacy of the Oakland clan is that they helped consolidate a kind of white identity. In other words, they helped a bunch of different kinds of white people come together as a group. And two of the things that helped define this identity were an anger at a broken system and a sense of victimization. That they weren't getting what was rightfully theirs. This is exactly what Trump has done, but on a national scale. And just like with the Klan, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump's totally shameless corruption and inexperience in governing leads his administration to fall apart pretty quickly. But here's the scary part. Even if Trump is toppled, it's the forces he's unleashed that we should be afraid of. The quote-unquote normalization of extreme racism is just the beginning. Remember how the Klan paved the way for an undemocratic government controlled by business elites? Well, just take a look at Trump's cabinet picks. They're a bunch of billionaires and people who want to literally dismantle the agencies they're supposed to be running. In other words, yeah, I'm scared. But again, history shows the way. Eventually, Oakland's city manager system of government was revoked and a more democratic structure was put in place, one where the people actually get to pick who's running the city. And it's not perfect, but it's an improvement. And you know how this happened? People organized. They spent years and years fighting before they actually won that battle. And that's the real lesson, I guess. The fight is never over. For this episode, I want to thank Professor Chris Romberg, the Oakland Book Fest, and Gary Mills. As always, props to everyone who is working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, the Oakland History Facebook group, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. Please follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links to all those pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And please, help spread the word about this show. It means a lot. Music for this episode was provided by Scott Joplin, Studio Noir, and James Scott. The theme song music came from Anatech. If you have feedback on today's show, or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. See you next week. Well, I have to look at the group. I mean, I don't know what group you're talking about. If you would send me a list of the groups, I will do research on them, and certainly I would disavow if I thought there was something wrong. But you may have groups in there that are totally fine, and it would be very unfair. So give me a list of the groups, and I'll let you know. Okay. I mean, I'm just talking about David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan here, but. I don't know it honestly I don't know David Duke I don't believe I've ever